You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day and the many blessings in our lives. Open our eyes and our hearts uh, to see your fingerprints all over this world, Lord. And I pray especially today, Lord, for uh, this church. I ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon it, um, bless it, um, encourage it where it's right, stop it where it's wrong, Lord. And um, Lord, just so fill it with your Spirit that in everything that it does, um, it gives glory to you and proclaims the gospel for the ingathering of your people, Lord. So um, I pray your blessing on it. And Lord, now I just ask that you would be with me as I teach, um, guide and direct me, and um, ask, Lord, that um, we would all have the spirit of John the Baptist to point to you always and to pray that we might de decrease, that he might increase. And I ask all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen. All right. Well, um, this is my last Sunday with you all. It's been such a joy to be back here with you for a time and a season. Um, and um, it's just been so wonderful uh, to, to be with you all. And to have a chance to teach and to just visit and um, so I'm very thankful for that um, and today um, so I really want to cover uh, the last little bit of my class which we'll see how much far I get but uh, I'll do the best that I can um, but equally before I begin I just were there any questions from the last three three weeks questions about what I've talked about that, that you've kind of been wondering, I'm happy to answer those before I start today. Oh, okay. Right, so with the land being so barren, particularly on those liminal places like Bethlehem, for example, the uh, that real... Um, the line between the desert and the sown, as Gertrude Bell said, why would they raise livestock there? And um, this is a great question that actually comes into rabbinic literature later in some really interesting ways. Um, and we all tend to think of shepherds as the be-all, end-all, right? Isn't that the great career you want to be? But actually, what we read in later Judaism is that shepherds became a huge problem. As you settle down and you start growing you know, more settled crops and fruit trees. What do sheep and goats do to those settled crops? They destroy them. <laughs> and so in later rabbinic literature, actually, shepherds got a very bad reputation. You know, it was on par with being like a panhandler, essentially. It was a very bad reputation for shepherds in later rabbinic Judaism, um, in spite of the fact that David was a shepherd. But, um, and so the, that, that tends to mean that you, you deal with your livestock, your sheep and goats, and actually primarily goats. Um, there were sheep and flocks in Israel and still today, but mostly they raise goats, and why? 
because goats are far hardier. They can eat a lot less desirable things and still survive. Sheep are, um, sheep are very high maintenance animals. So they would grow them, they would raise them then in these liminal places and they would have to move them obviously um, between pasturage during the season. Um, but they would start out in the springtime in those places, uh, kind of in the wilderness areas where you will get seasonal grasses, um, but it doesn't last long, but that's where you start and before you move them closer in to more grassy areas. But you need the sheep and goats primarily for their milk and for their wool. Um, that's uh, that's your a lot of your fat and protein is in the milk and then you also need the wool for clothing. You would only actually sacrifice a sheep or a goat on the high holy days or at a wedding and then um, that would be feeding your full extended family. So, um, you know, it's just very interesting um, how times have changed. So they ate very little meat in their diet because to kill one of your animals was to mean that you did not have the, the wool and the milk going forward. So. But yeah, so that's why Bethlehem, because it's further away from the very settled crops and pasturage where you're trying to grow wheat and barley and fruit trees um, that are also important for your diet. So yeah, and there is another question. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So, so when I, so in the Marine Corps, we orient a map, or if the Boy Scouts or anybody else, when you pull out a map, which way do you orient your map? North, right? And why do we do that? Because of magnetic north, that's the way our compasses point. Well, before compasses, um, and in the Middle East, and this was not just Israel, it was many of the cultures in the ancient Near East, they actually oriented their maps and their lives, they didn't have maps per se, but they oriented, in other words, they sort of figure out where they are by looking which direction? Towards the rising sun, which is east. And so when we, so one of the things that is helpful in biblical historical geography is to actually truly orient your map instead of north, you turn it to the east because you start seeing things differently. And I know this sounds ridiculous until you do it a lot. But I now, when I look at a map of Israel, I always turn it eastward facing. So I'm looking at it eastward because that's how they lived. And that's how they understood the way their lives were oriented, not toward nor magnetic north, which meant nothing to them. They didn't have compasses, they didn't have maps. So they looked to the east because that's the direction that the sun rose. And if you really wanna know, okay, which way am I going? If I know that like, you know, Bethlehem's this way, how, you know, Bethlehem is to my left, it's because I'm looking at the rising sun. So that's what they did. And that still is included in the word orient. We orient our maps. And what is the root of the word orient? East. So we still retain that idea that we look to the rising sun. And this then becomes important theologically too, you know, because which direction is the Lord gonna come from when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead? From the east, you know, we read that in the prophets, we read that in the New Testament. So, 
So our, our spiritual lives are oriented towards the east. And so one of the things that I really encourage people to do is when you look at a map of Israel, orient it east instead of north and start understanding um, the way that they, in the biblical times, understood their world orientation. So it's just one of those little things. Does that make, does that clarify? All right, super. Other questions? All right, well then we'll get on. So, so last time we talked, we talked about those northern parts, the northern gateways. These were the directions that people came and went through this land between the center of the world land from the north. And, um, and of course, in the Old Testament period, it's really important because the main enemies, the two real biggies, as we move on, were Babylon and Assyria. And they came over across the Fertile Crescent and down in from the north. Um, and so today I want to talk a little bit about the center of the northern kingdom. So if you all remember your biblical history, after, um, after Solomon dies, his son takes over. His son is a terrible leader and the kingdom of Israel splits in two. You get the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel. Although sometimes in your Bible, you'll see it called Samaria, which was after one of its capital cities, or even Ephraim, which was one of the biggest tribes and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and so the, the heart of this northern kingdom is this Samaria area. And it really served as like a big roundabout. And every, you know, most of the big trade that went around the Mediterranean basin in the Middle East actually wound up going through the heart of Samaria, um, through the Jezreel Valley, coming in at Caesarea on the coast, going out towards the Jezreel or out towards Beit Shan, which is near the Jordan Valley. And so it's really this big roundabout. And because of this, and because of the quality of the land in this area, um, and there's another map, and this is kind of a heartland here um, of the, the Northern Kingdom, which is all in green there. And because of this, the Northern Kingdom actually in its time was far more prosperous and wealthy than the southern kingdom of Judah. We tend to think that Judah and David and Jerusalem was, you know, we always tend to focus on that because we know how things all turn out. But in its time, actually, the northern kingdom was vastly stronger and more wealthy than that southern kingdom. And in part because of the, it being this giant roundabout in the heart of this land between. Uh, here's a um, picture of one of those valleys and you can just see how beautiful this is. This is in the spring and the almond trees are blossoming, um, which I again love you when you think of Aaron's staff, right? And um, so you can see this is beautiful. This is just north of Bethel actually. Um, but also it's in this area that you get a lot of the history. So this is Jacob's well um, in, in Sychar. Um, and for those of you that I'm sure some of you have been, did you drink from the well? Did they, did you go, okay, you are a brave man. I've looked down that well with a, I'm like, I'm not drinking out of that. If you go, you know, let them bring some of the water up, get a little bottle of it if you want, but I don't recommend drinking it. 
because I shone a torch down there, a flashlight down down at once, and there's a lot of stuff floating in that. Mm, you don't want to drink it. But anyway, um, but it's a cool place. This is Jacob's Well, and the church is, again, archaeology. You know, you can go back and you see that there had been like series of buildings beneath the church that sits atop it currently, which tends to indicate this was a place that has been venerated as holy. Continuity of holy space is always really important because people tend to keep worshiping where they have worshiped. You know, a church burns down. Do they rebuild somewhere else? No, you rebuild where your people worship before. And we see that throughout the Holy Land. One of the other interesting things in the northern kingdom of Samaria is Mount Gerizim. Uh, you'll remember this goes clear back to, uh, to Moses and to Joshua coming into the land that they stood on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and, uh, and renewed the covenant with the Lord. Well, in later time, this becomes the heart of the Samaritans. Samaritans still exist. They're a small community. Um, predominantly, um, actually, south, in south, south of Tel Aviv, but also here in Mount Gerizim. Um, and this was where the Samaritan Temple was. And we think of the Samaritans as kind of not being theologically correct. But it's interesting, the Samaritan texts say that it's the people in Jerusalem that weren't theologically correct. So um, the Samaritans built a full-size temple, just like the one, or pretty much like the one, that you would see in Jerusalem. Um, and they worshipped there um, until the intertestamental period. So the 400 years from the close of the Old Testament, basically, to the coming of Jesus. And in that intertestamental period, you have um, a Jewish kingdom called, known as the Hasmoneans. That was a family name. And um, one of the Hasmonean rulers, um, it was John Hyrcanus, uh, who uh, says um, in 128, we're getting rid of all of this Samaritan nonsense, and he destroyed their temple. They continued to live and worship there, but um, now um, you'll see some of that building. Um, if from the view, you see that octagonal thing in the center, that is a Byzantine era church. Um, and so this continuity of holy space here, um, and uh, you also then see this little uh, Islamic uh, tomb at its corner there, continuity of holy space. Um, and um, the, the, the octagonal Byzantine chapel there, again, um, you know, sort of remembers Jesus being in this Samaritan area. And so marking this as a special place. So that's the heartland. Now I want to take us to the south, to the southern arena. So here, um, if you look below the horizontal red line, um, this is all kind of considered the southern arena. Um, on this side, you've got Moab and Edom. Um, you've got the Nabataeans in, in this area in, in, the, in the first century AD, BC AD period. Herod's, Herod the Great, his mother was Nabataean. So we, we get all these connections. Then going out this way, of course, you've got Egypt. 
And then in, in Old Testament period, you've got the Philistines here as well. So, and those blue arrows again show you some of the major roadways. So the King's Highway over here in modern Jordan, the coastal route here, but then the smaller routes for people that were, for example, Nabataean traders um, coming up this way, um, if they were then gonna go down to Egypt. So um, again, it is this land between the Holy Land as we know it, that is this huge, as a whole, it's this huge sort of crossroads for all of these different cultures coming and going. And again, why does this matter? Because I think when we wonder why did God choose Israel to, why this plot of land to be the place of his self-revelation? Well, because it is the crossroads of the ancient world. You know, why did the gospel spread the way it did? Because of where it all happens. Um, and we really see it when we start looking at the map and understanding these ancient routes. Um, so this uh, a picture um, of a Bedouin camp in on the Jordan side. You've got your sheep and your goats there. It's a terrible way to live, I'll be honest. You're walking by it and these just, it's sort of like, oh, it's so sad. There's massive poverty. Um, but um, this, this was, was in the area of the ancient Moabites, um, but you see it's pretty dry and they actually are kind of living on the side of a wadi. So they're able to find water, but it's still difficult. The Southern arena also includes what's known as biblical Negev. If you look at a map of Israel today, it goes all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba um, at uh, Elat. Um, in biblical times, really the biblical Negev, these three Negev basins were kind of the Southern boundary. Um, and um, this is uh, very interesting digs going on there, um, dating clear back to the Calcolithic period when we see these semi-nomadic people eking life out of this pretty dry, deserty area. But this is important area for the Old Testament. Um, can anybody think of people that might have spent some time down in these biblical Negev areas? Abraham. Isaac, their whole things with Gerar, and then of course um, the the their time at Beersheba or Beersheba, an ancient city. Oldest levels go down again to the Chalcolithic period. Um, the top of the tell is Iron Age, so the last sort of civilization level on this tell was Iron Age. So this is Old Testament, you know from from Joshua coming back in um, all the way through to the end of the Babylonian conquest. That's, that's really your top level. Um, this is where Abraham and Abimelech of Gerar made an oath agreeing to sort of sorting out a territorial dispute. Uh, it's the well of the oath or well of the seven for seven lambs that would have been sacrificed to seal this agreement. Um, but some of the interesting things at Beersheba, and look at how dry that is. This is summer. It's very dry. Um, uh, you, there are um, f examples of those four-room houses that I mentioned as being 
one of the signs that the Israelites had come in. Because prior to this, you have very different housing structures. And so one of the ways that you can tell like the Israelites were here is you look for these four room house structures and we see them in abundance in Beersheba because ultimately Beersheba becomes one of the important southern guarding cities to keep the Moabites and the Edomites out um, to provide protection because if you go right up the road from Beersheba, you get to Hebron and you keep going and then you get to Bethlehem. And if you keep going, where do you wind up? Jerusalem. So Beersheba is one of your first lines of defense in the ancient world because of where it sat on a road. So this is a picture that was taken in, um, uh, I think I took this in September. So end of summer, see how dry. There's a little bit of green down near right where you've got seasonal springs. So deep down there's some water. But then here is springtime, and you can absolutely feed your flocks on that. Um, uh, so, but you've got to move them by the height of summer. One of the other um, uh, sort of guard cities, and this is one of the things that archaeology is doing a lot on right now, they've been finding this whole string of basically military outposts all in this whole biblical Negev. There's three basins, basically, and they're discovering this string of forts um, to, to protect the heart land of Judah, which I think is so fascinating because I, I really find ancient warfare interesting. <laughs> um, but this is one of them, Tel Arad, and Arad is a really interesting place. I love taking people to Arad. It was a fortress, uh, one of the places where we have some of the earliest written evidence of the, of the um, kingdom of Judah. They found a whole room that was filled with shards of pottery, just pottery shards where people had taken notes. And um, we believe that those notes then would have been put um, into a formal letter to let the king in Judah know, uh, the king in Jerusalem know how things were going during difficult times. So basically these little pottery shards were, were ancient post-it notes. Um, but fascinating, we, you know, that's the holy grail for archeologists is to find written things and a whole stash of them here at Arad. But the other thing that was interesting about Arad is in, the, um, in this fortress, they also found a mini temple. What's the problem with that? You can only worship in Jerusalem. But they found a mini temple, which was problematic. And then, in, and then worst of all, this mini temple looked like this. This is the Holy of Holies in this mini temple. You've got these uh, masebo, which are basically symbolic of the God. What do you see? One, two. What's going on here? Well, we think that what had happened at this barren fort in the middle of the desert, they decided that God needed a girlfriend. <laughs> And so most scholars think that the second one was probably an Asherah, so God, the God's consort, his wife. Um, they've also done some interesting tests on the 
residue that was found on these two little pillars, which were incense pillars, um, it appears that they were using burning some form of ancient marijuana on them. So it's very interesting. Well, what's also interesting is that pigs is pigs and people are funny, like my grandmother used to say. Um, uh, what's interesting, though, is that um, there's some dispute. Some say in, during the time of Hezekiah, others in the time of Josiah, and I had a really big argument about this with another guide at Arad last time I was there. Uh, we agreed to disagree in the end. But anyway, um, so I, at one of the times when one of the later kings, either Hezekiah or Josiah, was was um, sort of resetting religion in the land, this was destroyed. The Asherah was tipped on its face and the, it, it, it was basically cleared out at that point. So very, very interesting. This, you can see this set up now, a fake one at Arad, the real one's now at the Israel Museum. But again, this is the biblical negative. This is desert until spring when it's in bloom. It's so beautiful. Um, you can feed your flocks on that. Also in the southern region, of course, you've got Masada, which everybody loves Masada, going to Masada because it's really cool. Masada, though, um, was is fabulous. Um, there's a lot of debate as to whether Herod even visited, had this fabulous thing built, whether he was ever there. But Herod the Great built this. There's a string of them. And it was essentially his escape route. So he would have gone from Jerusalem if things got hot in Jerusalem. Because remember, Herod the Great was not beloved. Um, he would have then fled to Herodium near Bethlehem. From there, he would have been able to flee um, to Masada. And from there to his mother's territory in modern-day Jordan. So, um, so Masada, of course, though, you get the sense of how difficult life was, but also how clever they were. The water system at Masada is a source of wonder to me, um, that they were able to collect the water coming down out of those hills and save it um, so that the people could survive. And they had, there's huge cisterns on Masada. And again, this is all helping us understand how they lived. And, and it also, in, it, I, I think that it really helps us understand when the prophets say, you know, you're broken cisterns, you can't hold water. You know, how so much of these spiritual edicts in the Bible are based in just how they live, how they lived and what they faced. And so um, this is some of what we learn when we go to these places. And the Dead Sea. Um, which is dying, sadly, because so much water is being taken out of the River Jordan upstream now. The Dead Sea is actually dying. They're not sure if it's going to be extant in another 50 years. There's a huge project going on right now, a discussions between Jordan and Israel to actually dig a huge trench from the Gulf of Aqaba up to the Dead Sea to save it from dying. It's really interesting. But um, again, um, you know, when you read about like good and bad water, this is part of their reality. Interestingly, also in Josephus and in Roman documents, the Dead Sea is called Lake Asphaltitis. 
because it got these like asphalty like things that would float on it and they would um, harvest that to sell um, uh, for sealing things. But one of the things that feeds the Red Sea is the spring at En Gedi. Um, so you'll remember that from David cutting off a portion of Saul's cloak at En Gedi. But you've got the Dead Sea, but you've also coming into it, and it's a beautiful hike, which is um, overrun these days with Israeli school groups. Um, <laughs> but um, it's really beautiful to go see En Gedi. But again, this idea of springs of living water, if you are walking or living in that area, these springs of living water have so much more meaning than they do for us who just turn our tap on. Think about walking through that area. Say walking on the, oh, go the wrong way. Walking along the shoreline there. It's hot and horrible. You can't drink the water, it'll kill you. And then you come to this and suddenly, that, that reminder of springs of living water means so much more. Qumran, the caves at Qumran, all of these guys hiding out there because they really hated they really hated the people in Jerusalem and hiding there in the caves and establishing this community and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which help us have such confidence in the Old Testament. Um, all of all of these scrolls and fragments that tell us that, that, that the, the Bible, the Old Testament, that the manuscripts that we have that are later are so like these that date to 2nd, 1st century BC. We can have confidence in, in the Bible that we have because God kept the word sound through all of the centuries. Dead Sea Scrolls now housed at the Shrine of the Book. I wonderfully got to take a class from the man who directs the Shrine of the Book. Um, that Take a Dead Sea Scroll class with him is pretty awesome. Anyway, um, and, um, and then uh, it's, by, it's shaped like the top of the jars that the scrolls were found in. And this is the inside with the scroll of Isaiah, the longest scroll that was found. Um, this, though, is not the actual one. They have to keep that preserved. This is a really good facsimile. It's still awesome to see um, because these are obviously so fragile now. Um, but uh, I just, that's amazing. So, and then the heartland of the South then is really the kingdom of Judah. The, this, the central hills of Judah, which include Jerusalem. Um, and it's this area here. So in the black. Now this little red area there is interesting because this is the heartland of the northern kingdom. This is the heartland of the southern kingdom. And then you've got this little red area. And that was the tribal allotment for Benjamin. And it's very interesting because who was the king from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin? Saul, right. And Saul, of course, is, and his line is cut off. Um, and God instead chooses David, who's from the tribe of Judah. This is a smaller tribe. Again, remember, this Ephraim, Manasseh, this northern kingdom, and the tribes that ended up making the northern kingdom were much stronger than the tribe of Judah. So 
David kind of has a huge problem here that God had already solved, but basically everybody's thinking David is a yokel from a not very great part of the country. Why would we possibly let him be king? And so partially how God solves this is that the, the city of Jerusalem during the early years of the kingdom, does it actually belong to Israel? It didn't. This is one of the, the, Jerusalem was one of the cities that Joshua and the Israelites did not conquer when they came into the land. Who ends up conquering the Jebusite city of Jerusalem? It's a fun little story. David crawls up the water system, doesn't he? And, but what's so fascinating is that Jerusalem is right on the edge between the tribal territory of Benjamin and the tribal terri uh, territory of Judah. So, so God, you know, this very important place, but also helps to legitimize David's reign. So, you know, I, and I, why do I love all of this? Because we've got all of the spiritual reality of God at work, but it's also playing out in real human history. And I love that because how many, how many times do we think life is just so much more difficult than it used to be? You know, it's so much more complex. Well, it was complex back then too. And this, this is where we see some of this reality coming through when we understand the history and geography. Um, and so, um, so this is very interesting. And this will be part, uh, kind of it's, it's disputed part, and the North and the South during the divided kingdom period actually fight over this area a good bit. Um, so, but um, coming back then to the heartland of the Southern kingdom of Judah in this black, this is the hill country. And again, remember the cats and the mice from last week? This hill country allows this little mouse kingdom to be connected, but also to be safe when the big cats come out to play. Um, and it's beautiful. Um, again, a springtime shot, the terracing of the hills. Um, this is just, this is when one of the little parks to the south of Jerusalem, that it was just great on a, a Shabbat everybody in Jerusalem would be hiking in this park just to get some green and to enjoy the beauty of the region. So this is the spring um, and it's on the west side of Jerusalem. And now this is a shot out near um, Bethlehem and this is going to the east. So this is going down into the Arava, going down towards the Dead Sea, your sheep and goats again and how difficult this is. Um, but this is the Lord is my shepherd territory. This is Psalm 23 territory. And I, for me, this made all the difference. As I said, my first day, uh, when I was teaching this, you know, I grew up in England and every time I read the 23rd Psalm, it was England's green and pleasant land. Sing it if you know it. Um, and, um, <laughs> but this is actually the reality. And so you think about this and then read the 23rd Psalm again, and it is so much deeper and richer. Because if you don't have a good shepherd in this land, you're not going to be okay. You're just going to die. Um, this is the land. This is why the 23rd Psalm is so um, beautiful and so meaningful, um, especially when you understand how difficult it is to be a sheep in this kind of territory. So this is out near Bethlehem. And then, of course, Jerusalem, 
the center of the world. I'm looking there over at the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock um, from the Mount of Olives. So you're looking down the hill of the Jewish cemetery over into the Islamic, the Muslim cemetery, which is over on that side of the hill. Um, and the, uh, the Muslim cemetery today covers up the Golden Gate, which was one of the important gates into uh, up onto the Temple Mount, now closed, um, and outside the city walls. One of the ways in archaeology that you always figure out where the city walls were is you look for the graveyards because you always buried your people outside the city walls. This is true in Rome or any ancient cities. You can, if you find the predominance of cemeteries, you can pretty much guess where your city walls are because you don't want to bury your people in the same place that you're living. Um, because, well, you know, it's the ancient world and people died from all sorts of terrible things and you didn't want that. In case it was catching, you didn't want it inside the city. You buried them outside the city. Um, but Jerusalem is so important, and I just want to share this because this is one of my favorites. So this was my archaeology professor when I was over there, Gabriel Barkai, great guy. Um, but he was digging over in Kataf Hinom. For those that have been to Jerusalem, it's near St. Andrew's Church, just outside the city walls. And he was digging in Iron Age tombs, and he found two tiny pieces of rolled up metal. Um, and this, when they finally were able to unroll it, it was a little silver scroll that it basically included the priestly blessing. It's a little different than we read, um, but it's essentially the priestly blessing. And um, from number six, um, uh, may God bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so you see here, um, so this is the actual scroll. This is um, kind of a Xerox of it so they could see the writing. And, and I am in awe of ancient Hebrew epigraphers who can figure this stuff out because it just looks like somebody was doodling. Um, and then this is the modern Hebrew translation. But um, we got to spend a whole day at the Israel Museum with Dr. Barkai and so we took his picture next to his find, which again, how cool is that? So, um, and so Jerusalem's so important and always has been. And then we come out of Jerusalem. So um, Jerusalem's over here and you come down towards the west, you come out of the hills into this yellow. And this yellow is, is what's known as the Shvelah. And this is the swinging door of, of Judah, because what in ancient Judah, so the Israelites or the Judahites and the Israelites are all up in here in the hills. Then you've got this yellow, who's down here? The Philistines. This area then is a swinging door and the archeology span in this region is super interesting. You've got these, um, these basically wadis, these streams um, that run down pro providing east-west corridors. This is where most of the battles that we read, David and Goliath, um, and later even in time with the Romans coming in, take place in these valleys um, because you can travel along them. 
but you're also, this is where armies tend to meet. Um, so you've got the, the valley where David met Goliath. You've got, um, you've got the, the place where um, Samson fights with the Philistines. So these are all in these valleys. Um, Azekah, uh, a real, it's one of the hills that overlooks um, a couple of these valleys, great views and a great sense there. But those swinging doors, and this is why so many of the Old Testament battles take place in like the Wadi Sorek or Ailon, because those were the doors. And so when the, a lot of the archeology span along in that area is very fortified, very heavily fortified cities, because um, there's good land down there, but it's hard to hold on to. It's also interestingly what we see in the archaeology of the cities in the in the Shvela is you see a lot of interaction between Philistine and Israelite pottery. So it always makes us wonder, well, how how much were they fighting? How much were they trading and trying to get along? It's very interesting. Um, and um, you know, we, we can only guess at some of the answers. Um, but this is a great little site here. This is Tel Gezer, and I love this one. Got to help out with one of the digs here at Gezer. This is the city gate for Gezer, and um, it's basically in Philistine territory. So it's outside the yellow area into the coastal plain that was Philistine. But it's important in the Bible because of King Solomon because Solomon was given this fabulous walled city by the Pharaoh of Egypt when Solomon married the Pharaoh's daughter. So super interesting, which tells us what about Egypt during the time of Solomon and David then? Egypt was still big cat on the block and still in the land so much so that this was basically an Egyptian city in Philistine territory in the Holy Land. Really interesting. We see the same thing um, up at um, uh, Beit Shan, which is just south of the Galilee um, in the Jordan Valley. So it's very interesting, um, which is probably also some of the problem with the, the uh, Egyptian intermarriage which of course becomes a huge problem for Solomon. And in fact, I remember when I was first taking Hebrew, the first thing I had to translate was, and King Solomon had many foreign wives. An interesting choice. It was good sort of grammatically, I guess, but it was like, oh, that's a weird one, but okay. So, um, and then of course you get to the coastal plain, which in Jesus's day, or excuse me, in the Old Testament was Philistine. Um, in Jesus's day, it's, uh, you know, it's a much more mixed area, um, including, uh, and then when we, sorry, just to go back to the Shvela area, um, this uh, um, uh, uh, Guvrin here, this little coastal, this little wadi, um, was uh, the Edomites were resettled there um, before, before in the intertestamental period and they become known not as Edomites but as Idumeans and um, so Herod the Great's family is from the Idumean people so um, who converted 
to Judaism, but we're never seen as quite, quite great. So anyway, <laughs> um, so all of this history in the land. Um, and then just finally, this is a picture of the old city going out Damascus Gate. Um, and uh, just this for me captures part of the wonder of this land from all time. Why the Holy Land? Because literally, look at that street scene. You've got Israeli soldiers. You've got Muslim women selling the produce from their back gardens in East Jerusalem. You've got tourists from all over the world and still coming and going in this land that is kind of the center and they are coming and going um, because most of those pilgrims are there. Why? To, to, to walk this God-trodden land, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to worship and to see and to understand. And from there they go all over the world. Um, and, um, and so I, I love Israel for that because it's always been that and it still is. And then the final thing that I want to say about biblical geography is God has put you all in this place at this time for a reason. So who, you know, what is your call in this city at this time? You know, and I, I think that God uses all these things for a reason. And so I believe that every church, no matter what community it's in, God has called them and put them there for a reason. Um, and that the place you are has an impact on the ministry that you're called to do. Um, and so I think that biblical historical geography helps us understand the Bible better. But it also asks us to ask questions. You know, what's our call in Birmingham, Alabama, in this unique place that God created? And how do we fulfill that and live into that? And so I pray that you pray through all of that. It's been a joy to be with you all. And it is now 11 o'clock. So um, for those that need to go to service, um, God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you always. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.